If you look at the tech universe, it revolves around the US and China. I spent a lot of time, almost 10 years, in the Valley ecosystem, but I haven't really seen the China tech ecosystem. So I was really curious how it works, how is it like, how is it different. There was like a great opportunity for me to learn and see how it worked from the inside. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and Southeast Asia is fast becoming the battleground for both US and Chinese tech companies. Yet, navigating through the different company cultures can be daunting for anyone who shifts from one to the other. So with me today, I have Yao, a well-known operator within the Southeast Asia community and currently taking a break from work, given that every VC or business operator often mention you to me, even though we know each other for ages. So uh, it will be great to have you to talk about this subject. Welcome, Yao. Hi, Bernard. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And your full name is... Yo Yao, correct? And you are currently, other than not working, you're also a prolific angel investor and part of the extended leadership within the XA network, which I will be getting them on pretty soon. Yes, but the subject today we are going to talk about is a little bit interesting from your point of view because Andy has to trace through your career as well. So before we start, all my first time guests, I always ask them their origin story. How did you start your career before your adventures with a US and Chinese tech company? Sure, let, let's start there. So my, my journey in the tech will probably start up with Infocom Investments. So I don't think a lot of people would know what is Infocom Investments now, but back in, I think, 2008-2009, at that time, IDA, which subsequently merged with MDA to form IMDA, uh, was restructuring Infocom Investments into a venture fund to basically help build up the startup ecosystem. And you know, Singapore was very different at that point in time. There wasn't like Block 71, there wasn't many VC funds around. You and I talked about this before, Hackerspace was in Mohammed Southern area. It was a very, very different startup ecosystem at that time. And during that time, Ping, who's from Mangxiu Ventures, you know, he was sitting on the IDA board. And we were introduced, so Ping and I were introduced by a common friend. So we grabbed coffee. I, re I even remember where we had coffee very clearly. I spent half the time lamenting about, oh my God, like the startup ecosystem in Singapore is horrible. Like, you know, it's very different from the Valley. So he, he came back from the Valley and I used to spend time in the Valley. And it was talking about how there's so much that we can do. I feel like it's so behind that, you know, we ought to do something about it. Paying at the time was looking at Infocom Investments and what I mentioned earlier. And he shared with me what he was trying to do with Infocom Investments and then invited me to join him to help build it. The long story short, at the time in 2008, 2009, I couldn't leave my org, but I ultimately joined him in 2010 to launch Infocom Investments in the States. And it was also then when I moved back to the Bay Area. And that was also how eventually I got involved more in the tech startup ecosystem and you know, joining a US company Twilio and then Chinese company Alibaba. I thought I should add just one quick point. By Infocom investments, you mean the Infocom investments that's under the Infocom Development Authority of Singapore then, which is under the Singapore government. And subsequently, this entity became what is now known as the Infocom and Media Development Authority. So for those who comes to the Southeast Asia region and stop by Singapore, this is one of the key government agencies that you have to deal with other than the Singapore Economic Development Board. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> or EDB in short. But mm -hmm. coming back to this, I guess before we go dive deep into your career, which is actually the main subject of the day, throughout your career journey, what are the most interesting lessons that you can share with my audience? Mm, okay, now that's a really broad question. So maybe I'll just highlight a few, maybe three lessons that I think might be interesting for your audience. So I think first, one of the classic career advice that people get would be when you take on a job, you should either be learning or earning, and ideally both, obviously. Personally, I've always slant towards the learning side. So I've always tried to optimize for learning, which usually involves me jumping you know, deep out of the pool and then hoping I can survive. So when I look at when people look at kind of my career path, it's always like hopping from into the unknown and then something very different. And then usually that's where I feel I learn the most. And at some level, I've, I'm a little ADHD. 
So if something I've done before many times, it gets really boring really fast. So learning about something new, a new domain, a new area is very appealing to me. You know, otherwise life is just too boring. So you know, I'm always on the search for these original insights. And, and so I go looking around and, oh, something that makes me go, that's really interesting. I never look at it this way. Oh, that's really interesting. I never tried this before. That, that is interesting to me. You know, a lot of times, it's very important to be willing to jump in and be willing to learn and constantly learning. That's why if you look at a lot of the people who are very successful, you realize that they are also very avid readers. They read about everything, not just about business. Because there's a lot of stuff that teaches you. Reading opens up your horizon. They help you up your mental models. They help sharpen your minds. I think one of the things beyond just reading and just learning is that you have to apply all that you learn in the context of whatever you're working on right now or in the future. So that, that's one. Be always optimized for learning. The second thing I think was that, especially in Asia, especially for a lot of Asians, we are very hesitant to take a leap of faith. It's very easy for us to be very comfortable with the status quo. Humans don't really like change. I get that. But if you don't try, you will never know. So one of my favorite quotes is Roosevelt's the, the Man in the Arena, which is about the courage to jump into the arena and dare to try. It's better to have tried and than to never try at all. And you try, you fail, it's fine. You can pick yourself up and try again. And so I think in general, across my career, the willingness to jump and embrace the unknown has always, you know, sometimes it worked out well, sometimes it doesn't work out well, but net net on hindsight, I think it really served me well. And I feel like more people should be willing to you know, put themselves out there and embrace the unknown. And then I think the third thing I would say is that one of, one of the lines that I like to quote is the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I think too many people look at a successful person and they go, oh yeah, he got lucky. And maybe there's a whole bunch of people who lucked out, was at the right place at the right time and made it. But I think at some level, a lot of people were lucky, you know, quote unquote, because they were willing to apply themselves, they were willing to grind it out, and they created their own luck. So if you look at a lot of really, really successful people like Elon Musk, or Jeff Bezos, or Jack Ma, or Zhang Yiming, like it's very hard. Now, I've, I've met some of these folks before, and it's really hard to imagine them being lazy. If they were lazy, do you think they would have become where they are today? And then the other day, I was just thinking to myself, how many successful people that I know of and respect that you know, didn't really work hard, didn't really apply themselves. And I struggle to even think of a name. And, and I think that's one of the things that I live by. When you put yourself, when you really apply yourself to a problem, go all out. Go 100%, go 120%. The harder you work, the luckier you get. So those are probably three things that I will say serve me well throughout my career. And you know, I will offer that as advice to your audience. Interesting lessons indeed. So the main subject of the day is about working in two cultures and also discuss about angel investing as what you have been doing uh, across the Southeast Asia region. The, the good news of this is that you're probably one of the few rare operators who have actually done a role in a US tech company and a Chinese tech company in Southeast Asia or actually you cover the entire Asia Pacific. Maybe to start the conversation, can you share a bit about the former roles you started with Twilio, uh, which is pretty well-known communications company now? I think they have evolved more than that. And also Alibaba Cloud. Sure. So my role at Twilio was basically to set up um, Twilio in the APEC region. So setting up at that time, it wasn't very well-defined, but basically whatever I need to do to set up Twilio in APEC, apply myself and get it, get it done. So it's everything from product to sales to marketing to operations to finding office space to like opening bank accounts, fixing the printer <laughs> when it's not working, like getting employment pass, things like that. You know, hiring people and building up the team, all of that. So that was my first mandate at Twilio. And then subsequently at Twilio, uh, in the later years in 2017 and 2018, I was spending my time building one of the newer products. And then during that time, I was spending a lot of time in San Francisco. Well, working you know, two shifts, right? One is the APEC shift and the other being the Pacific time uh, to help build and launch Twilio Wireless, which we launched in 2018. And then after that, I joined Alibaba Cloud in early 2019. At Alibaba Cloud, 
I was responsible for both the product and the PL of one of the main product divisions in Alibaba Cloud. So everything outside of mainland China will come under my remit. Anything that involves CDN, edge computing, including things like the video infrastructure, the CPaaS infrastructure, all of those will be under me and my team. And my job was to build up the international product and then build up you know, international revenues on the back of that. So I'm going to start from the US company experience first. How do you land your role with Twilio? And what are the early days like? So. Yeah, I mentioned how I started getting into getting back into the tech world, which was Infocom Investments. The story actually started with Infocom Investments. So I moved to the Bay Area for Infocom Investments. And then in 2012, I came across this 50-man startup. It was still very small at that point in time. We were introduced by Union Square Ventures. That startup happened to be called Twilio. And so in 2012, I invested into Twilio on behalf of Infocom Investments. And since then, I was helping the company with anything Asia. At that time, it was just Bessemer, Union Square Ventures, and Infocom Investments. Bessemer was on the West Coast, USB is on the East Coast, and then we were the Asia side. So usually when there are problems with anything concerning Asia, like Byron and Albert would be like, oh, no, you should go talk to Yao, he can help you with it. And, and so that was how I started working with the guys at Twilio and get to know them a lot more since the age of. Then come 2014, for personal reasons, I was looking to move back to Singapore. And so I was like looking at what opportunities there are out there. I also went to you know, inform our courtesy or the portfolio companies, including Twilio, that, oh, I'm going to move back to Singapore. You know, I won't be able to help you anymore. If you do come to Singapore, I buy you a beer. And that conversation quickly became like, oh, why don't, why don't you join us? And we send you to Asia and you can go figure out like how to build Twilio in Asia. And it was entirely unplanned. I kind of fell into my role at Twilio. They came, they were saying, okay, we don't know what we want to do in Asia. You've been helping us with Asia. We have no plans actually with anything in Asia. Why don't you just go figure this out? And, you know, that was how I ended up joining Twilio. It was, you know, a very simple and clear decision. They were going to pay for my trip back to Singapore. I know the team. I know the product. Seems like a very obvious <laughs> choice to join them. And having worked with the team for two, three years from 2012 to 2014, you have this rapport with the team. You also have seen, you also know a lot of numbers, you know, know like the good and the bad of the company. So it's a very simple informed decision for me to jump from Infocom Investments to Twilio. So through Twilio, you led the expansion in Asia Pacific. So what is it like working for a US company operating in Asia? You know, it's interesting because the first, one of the first things I did when I joined Twilio was actually write a CTP. So CTP is basically like the Amazon six pager, which is, I'm sure you're very familiar. So I was like, it's, it's quite interesting because I realized over the years, I, I learned a lot more about like the different Amazon business practices. Actually, Twilio shares quite a number of them. I think partly because Rick, Rick Delzo, anybody steep in like the Amazon history would know who Rick is. And so Rick was on the board, on, on the Twilio board. And then Jeff, Jeff Lawson, who's the founder, Jeff was actually one of the first AWS product manager. So there was a lot of insights that they borrowed and then transplanted from the, the good things. They, they brought it into Twilio. And so one of these things was like the Amazon six pager. And so when I joined Twilio, actually one of the first thing I did was to write up a CTP and table it for discussion with the executive team after my first 30 days. Basically, for a lot of folks in the US, they don't really have a very good understanding of the Asian markets. When I joined, I was like, okay, we want to talk about strategy, but before we start talking about like market expansion strategy, like the first thing we need to do is to level set our understanding of the different geographical markets in APEC. And so I wrote up this really, really long, it actually was a lot longer than six pages. And uh, you talked about everything from like the TAM to the state of the developer and startup uh, community to like what's the competition on the ground, to like what's the cultural receptiveness to US, what localization would look like, what the telco regulations would look like, what is what I call the website momentum. So how many visitors are we getting from different countries in, in Asia to Twilio.com? But the goal was to give the e-team the background and context so that we can have a deeper level conversation around like the strategy. And, and so that was one of the things that I felt was really important to do at the beginning, really educating the US team on what things are like in Asia. 
And then that was at the, the very beginning. And then subsequently across the years, I had this, I try to get them out every quarter. So every quarter, somebody from E-Team, like I'll, I'll harass them until they come visit. <laughs> then, and I think it's very important for them to go out, be on the ground, talk to the team. It's a great morale booster. Talk to the customers to really understand what is the pain point that the customers have. And, and so that, those are some of the things that I was working on. So one of the things when, you know, shortly after I joined was that it became, we quickly became very clear that after the first few conversations I had on the ground, you know, trying to sell the product is that what Twilio had built at that point in time was obviously very different from what people in Asia were looking for. It's hard for now for a lot of people to imagine because it's a very, very big company now, but Twilio at that point in time was just like 200 people. We had like one international office, which was London, and there were like 10 people in London. And so we were still very, very early. The product was still very US-centric. So I'll give you a very good example. I'm not sure how familiar you or your audience are with like sender IDs. So on the SMS, there's this thing called sender ID. And so if you open up, for most people in, in other parts of the world, most people in Asia, if they open up the phone, let's say they got SMS from their bank, it usually would say like, okay, DBS Bank or Citibank. It's a branded message. You see the name of the, it's what we call alphanumeric sender ID. Such a thing is a very basic feature for any SMS product. Um, this thing doesn't exist conceptually in the US. There's no such thing in the US. So like the most basic feature on one of our main product doesn't exist. And like, it just wasn't a thing in, in the US. US doesn't use alphanumeric sender ID. And so like I had to basically, like it was very, became very clear that a lot of these things I just couldn't sell. There's like, it wasn't a simple case of just transplanting the product and, and selling it. And, and so like there was a, a lot of work to unlock the product, to light up the region, basically trying to talk to all the different telcos to get telco connectivity, building a lot of the features together with the product engineering team back home, debugging a lot of the product issues. For instance, we will have call quality issues into Australia. Basically for the first, I think for the first 12 to 18 months, I was on the road. One month in Asia, one month in the US. Just going back and forth, you know, one side talking to customers and telcos and hiring people and setting out all the entities and, and stuff like that. Then on the other side, going back, talking to the product engineering team to, to get them to help me build a lot of the stuff that I need in order to launch the region. And I think it really helped that you know, I knew the Twilio team well from you know, before having worked with them. And so they gave me a lot of that. But even so, you really have to earn the respect of the teams, especially with the product engineering team. They don't really want to do your thing if they think you're just talking bullshit. <laughs> so, and Twilio at that time was a very engineering heavy team. Like the culture was driven by engineering. So you really need to get into the weeds and start talking to them about, you know, we will be talking about really technical stuff like, oh, this G711U law and A law and G729 and SFPP binds. And then they respect the fact that you are not just another go-to-market guy. You understand the product, you understand the protocol, you understand the engineering. And I guess that's where my CS degree came in and was really, really helpful. I, I think the other interesting thing from working with a US company operating in Asia is that having big US customers on board was very, very essential to help us launch into the APEC region. So basically, one of the first steps in the strategy I proposed was to serve our US customers, but help them light up. They were basically our first customers in the APEC region. Because, you know, so, so for instance, like customers like Uber, we would serve them in US and they will often come to us, come, come to Twilio at that point in time and say like, you help us in US, you help us in Europe, can you help us in Asia as well? And so there was a very clear demand for the product, if we can make it work. And, and so a lot of times they become the folks that I work with very closely to iterate the early product, to try to get the MVP to work. So we will build the product, they will help us test it. And because they have such a good understanding of the product, they can tell us, okay, this is not working or that is working. And they can be very, very clear with, to, with us. And if things doesn't work, they will just get us to come to their office. We'll just come into the office. Uh, the Twilio and Uber office at that point in time 
were very close. Like I literally just walked to their office when I'm in San Francisco. And then we just sit down and talk about like some of the issues and then we'll go back, fix them, and then go on the ground, like try to figure out what are the issues. And that really helped in unlocking the product and leveling it up and getting to the level and quality that will serve both our US customers well, as well as the APEC customers well. So I want to double click a little bit. How does US companies approach the Asia Pacific market and how do they think about localizations and feedback from the ground? I mean, I, I, I did the go-to-market strategy for Amazon in the ASEAN region and also talking to the product teams in the US and sometimes it takes a lot of data points to tell them, hey, you probably need to look into this because and then usually we put like very important customers in front of them and they and then and they get a point and then they start working on it. So I, I think that process of iterative making iterative changes to the product to suit the market is something that I think a lot of US companies would struggle with because they just don't see the context on the ground. So how do, how do they think about it? I mean, from, from your experience. Yeah, so, so I think it was super helpful for me because at that time I was actually still based in San Francisco. So I was like going back and forth. And so I was like spending a lot of time in HQ and people in HQ would know me. And that really helped in building the rapport and relationships. It also helped when you, know, you had one of our biggest customers at that time, Uber, <laughs> to hound <laughs> the product engineering team together with me. <laughs> Since they're the biggest customer, it's like the voice of the customer has a lot of weight. <laughs> and, and that was very, very helpful. You know, I, I had this long-standing joke with Dan, our VP of product, Pat. Because every time I come back to him and I'll say, hey, I need to build this, this, and this. And then he'll be like, oh, okay, sure. Like, you always ask me, okay, two things, right? How much money is there behind this? And number two, like, okay, when do you need this? Q5, Q6? <laughs> so, <it was> always, <laughs> so that was like the long-standing joke that, that we had. But I think over time, they were really able to appreciate like how different the requirements were, especially if you come to them with very real requirements that I'm saying it, our biggest customer is saying it, people on the ground and the customers, like the other guys on the ground are also saying it, like, you know, all that helps to land the point home very real. And we're building something together with the customer. And it's something that is not trying to build in a vacuum. Like, we know if we nail it, like, this customer will use it. And this customer and a lot of other customers would use it. So there's very, like, it helps that there's real, real dollars behind this. And the customer themselves are telling you that they are willing to pay for this. And they're using it. And they're helping us with it. So, so that's one part of it. I think in terms of like the sales team, I was like very lucky because I found my sales, sales engineering folks, ops guys very early on. The, the people you bring on board early on, I think makes a world of difference. They know their stuff. They are able to come and count more people together with me. So one person holding different people in, the, in HQ versus like five people, 10 people holding different people in HQ makes a difference as well. <laughs> So like, and, and all the feedback that we bring, being on the ground, like during the early, day, early years, I remember, we all spent a lot of time in HQ. Easily, I think, on average, even after I moved back to Singapore, we will spend easily one, two, three months back in San Francisco. Again, it's building up that relationship, but also working with the teams very closely back in San Francisco to try to get the product localized. Because... It doesn't help if you just come for like a couple of days and then you tell them, oh, you need to do this. And then you just, and then you go back, like, and then things move really, really slow. Being, uh, really spending the time in San Francisco to get them to focus on getting the thing done. If they don't get it done, you don't, you, you don't, you, you don't leave their table. They will get it done for you very fast. <laughs> Interesting. So I guess I've read Jeff's Lawson's book, as a developer, and also mm -hmm. getting a sense of how Twilio as a high-growth company is like. What yeah. have you learned from working in a high-growth US company? Mm. You know, one, on hindsight, when I look back at kind of the journey I went through with Twilio, you know, a lot of people say it's very, very hard to imagine and truly understand and the exponential curve. And I think that is very, very true. I still remember very vividly, I think in 2014 or 2015, you know, Twilio was still pretty small at that point in time, right? 200 people, 
we were sitting around in, in the cafeteria and then we were drinking beer and then we were just, you know, some of the old Twilions were sitting around and then we were just joking like, oh, wouldn't it be great if the company got acquired for a billion dollars? That was like the ceiling of our ambition. We were like thinking, I'm like, wow, it's so hard to imagine. Like, you can imagine this company being acquired for a billion dollars. And, and that was kind of how we thought about it then. And then, and then the other time that I remember very vividly was in 2015. 2015 was the year that Twilio crossed the 100 million revenue mark. A bunch of us, 30 of us, went for the annual management outside. So it's a yearly thing. We will go pull up somewhere for two, three days and then talked about like, what should the company do, long-term plans, like plans for next year, that kind of stuff. And, and so when we crossed the 100 million mark in revenue mark in 2015, one of the things that Jeff wanted to do was like, figuring out like, what is our next target? And in his mind, the next target should be, okay, now that we cross 100 million, it should be existential level. So the next one should be like a billion. And so we, start, we studied, we did a lot of research into like, okay, what does it, like how many companies went from 100 million revenue to a billion revenue? And how long did it take them to get from 100 million to a billion? And you know, the results were quite, disappointing in that there are not a lot of companies who actually go on to make a billion revenue and it also takes them a long time. It's very, and it's very erratic. It's very subjective and varies widely across different companies and different industries. And so there wasn't any very, con very big conclusion that we can say like, oh, okay, now if we want to get to a billion dollar revenue, this is the amount of time we will probably need to give ourselves as the deadline because these are how other companies have done it. And so there was no conclusion from all the discussions. So there was a lot of debate back and forth. And, and ultimately, Jeff was like, okay, uh, you know, like, there's no point debating this any longer. Like, let's just aim, like, just set it as four years. We will get to a billion revenue in 2019. And from, so four years from 2015. And there was like no basis, no rhyme or reason behind that. I was like, okay, so where do you pull that four-year <laughs> number from? And I was like, okay, sure, since nobody has a better number, like, we just go with what? You know, the boss says, Jeff says four years, okay, four years, right? The amazing thing was that in 2019, Twilio actually hit a billion dollar revenue. I, I mentioned those because like, one of the key lessons that I like, take away from that is that it's very important to expect world-class excellence and set a really high bar for the team. Like people, humans are very amazing. When you set a high bar, they may lament about it, they will complain about it, but they will figure out ways to make it happen. It was the same thing that I saw at Alibaba, right? We will get mm -hmm. insane targets. Like the targets you get is like incredulous, but it really forces you to go beyond and figure out like how to hit those targets. A lot of times I have to rationalize it with my team. Like the anecdote that I always explain to people is like, let's say I ask you to run the 100 meter race and I tell you, oh, you have 20 seconds to complete the 100 meter race. Most likely, most of us will be able to do it. Most, like, most of us will be able to achieve that pretty easily. And then tell you, okay, now you have to do it within 10 seconds. You need to be like an Olympic class 100 meter dasher in order to do it, which becomes really, really challenging. And then by the time you don't have a choice, you have to do it within 10 seconds. So what will you do? So you think you will, it forces you to think out of the box. Maybe you will you know, hitch a ride. Maybe you will go borrow a bicycle. Nobody says that you can't try other mode of movement in order to complete the 100 meter race. And, and so it forces people to really uh, jump and reach for that goal, really stretch themselves. And even if they don't hit it, they are a lot closer to it than if you set a really low target. And I think that's one of the things that all high growth companies you are capable, are really good at doing. Mm. So I come to the second part of the story. You move to Alibaba Cloud. After Twitter. And <laughs> yep. Alibaba is a high growth company from China. So maybe my first question is, how do you end up in Alibaba Cloud? And what is the motivation in joining the company? Hmm. So, so basically after spending, I think that was around 2018, late 2018. So by around late 2018, I've been with Twilio for a few years now. And I was basically looking for a new adventure. So around, I think, August of 2018, you know, I told Twilio that you know, I'll be looking for something new, either within Twilio itself or joining a different team, working on a different project. Outside of Twilio, once we shipped, so at the time I was working on Twilio Wireless, 
Twilio was, Wireless was going to be shipped at Signal, which was the Twilio conference in October 2018. So I was saying, once we ship this, I'll probably go work on something else. And at that time, around that time, coincidentally, one of the Alibaba recruiters approached me. So I know the Alibaba team, having worked with them briefly back in 2015, talking about business partnership between Twilio and Alibaba. And I visited them a few times in Hangzhou. So I thought, why not? You know, let's have a chat. Let's see uh, what happens. And then, you know, as I dig into it a little bit more, try to understand Alibaba a little bit more as a company, it felt like a really interesting company to join as my next adventure. Part of this is, again, if you look at the tech universe, it revolves around the US and China. I spent a lot of time, almost 10 years in the Valley ecosystem, but I haven't really seen the China tech ecosystem. So I was really curious how it works, how is it like, how is it different? It was like a great opportunity for me to learn and see how it worked from the inside if I joined Alibaba. At the same time, my kids were getting older. I thought it's a good way to brush out on my Mandarin <laughs> so that I can actually teach them Mandarin. Yeah. And I have to say the, the on hindsight, the exposure was really fantastic. I was like doing customer support at Taobao for a few days. So I really see how Taobao operate at scale was just amazing. And then yeah, I got to speak with people like the head of Alipay and they were telling me the story of how they built Alipay. I got to visit Ting Ting, Ting, Ting Talk, uh, which is like the chat app that Alibaba built and speak with the first, one well, of the first guys who actually built it up and then kind of, you know, sharing the entire story of how, you know, they built that whole thing up. And it was just like having an MBA, like in China into this whole thing. And you get these lessons from folks, like speakers, I don't think you have gotten if I was not there. And, and you really learn a lot hearing all the stories and the war stories and stuff like that. It's really, really amazing. Interestingly, because as part of the executive team that brought the 300 million of Alibaba's money into Singapore Post, I also got to, got to share with their corporate teams and how they build out like DingTalk, for example, AliCloud. I even mm -hmm. met the head of AliCloud, who's also the, the founder of N Financial as well on that. But one interesting part, which I have in my part of the experience, was that I was trying to negotiate something with Alipay for like five months in Singapore with the Alipay Southeast Asia GM, but it didn't go anywhere. And when I went to Hangzhou, which is the headquarters of Alibaba, which is actually, to be honest, a lot of people were mistaken that Chinese companies are not Bay Area-like. I would just tell you, you'll be very disappointed when you go to Hangzhou, you see a very Bay Area-like company in Hangzhou, China. And basically the guy from who heads up Alicloud just set up a meeting with me and him and within 20 minutes we hash out an agreement so i was like well what took us so long in singapore to do five months where we could just do it 20 minutes in 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 hangzhou in china i should just come here and sort it out right but that comes to my next question so does product management in chinese companies differ from varies from their u.s counterparts because they tend to serve a very large domestic market, which is China yeah. itself. I'm not sure how much of my experience with Alibaba is specific to Alibaba, or uh, like how much can that be extrapolated to the rest of China? You know, if you think about it just like Amazon, Google, Airbnb, these are all US companies, but all of them have very different corporate culture. Like having talked to people from Tencent and ByteDance, it's also very different. But I think at the macro level, there are some like nuances. I notice it's the same across. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like it's it quite funny because like my my colleagues in in China was China was also asking me the same question. So I remember like drew this on the board a few times for them when I was explaining to them. Like one of the things I realized very quickly at Alibaba is like we have this idea of MVP, minimum viable product idea but i think the definition of minimum is very different in china and in the us a lot of times when you know i ask my engineering team in china to build something they will come back very quickly the turnaround time is amazing i ask them for this feature they'll build it they'll launch it it's all it's always in days and weeks right it's never in months and they will come back tell you oh i completed it and this is why it is and then you try it like and the moment you tried it, it might break at the very first instance you tried. 
So I was like, wait a minute, like, have you guys tested this? No. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it doesn't work? Okay, let me go and like, work on it again. Right? And so like the mindset to building something, like what is considered minimum viable, is very, very different in China versus in the US. Like in, in China, like a lot of times, like I end up, I realize I, I basically have to define very clearly what needs to be done, how it should behave. And I, I better test it a few times first before I accept that this is like what is acceptable that we can at least show to the customers. Well, in the US, I, most of the time I can trust when I tell the product manager, like, okay, you got to build this, da, 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 and then they'll come back with something that you know, I feel meets my quality bar a lot better. <laughs> and I don't really have to micromanage that much in order to make sure that you know, the thing works. So that's like one expect of the product management that's different. The other thing that I think is notably different is that roadmaps tend to be shorter in China. I, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, almost all the time when we talked about product roadmaps, we are mostly talking about what we want to get done this quarter or this year. Like we, there's very little of like, okay, this is what we want to get to three years from now, five years from now, which is what I will get more when I was working with my US colleagues in, in the US company. And I thought for a long time, like, why is that the case? I think in China, partly because you have hyper competition, partly because things change so quickly. Everything seems to be moving at twice the speed. There's really no point planning so far ahead. Whatever you deliver this quarter this year, it might not work next year. There's no point trying to plan for next year when you're just trying to figure out like what works for this quarter. Very similar do we see beyond the year, but it's also because things, the speed at which things are iterated or re-architected. Like when I joined, it was very clear that whatever architecture that we had for the CDN product, like what we built, it's not going to scale globally. And so starting after a few months, I was like, okay, I think we need to re-architect all these stuff because the way the internet works in China, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work in the rest of the world. Because after understanding how things work in China, I was like, and so I had a whole bunch of requirements like, okay, we need to redo this whole routing architecture. And the team came back and then for everything that I spelled out, and then they elaborate, okay, we need to change all these other subcomponents, you know, other systems that we need to change. All the timelines were within six months, six to 12 months. There's nothing beyond a year. And so you can do something like rehauling the architecture within six months. Like there's very little future planning, like multi-year planning that you really, really need to do. Yeah. But I think one of the things that you touch on in your question is like this large domestic market. One of the similarities I noticed between the US and China is that because the domestic markets are so large, they define their own standards. So like I talked about the numbering system in the US just now. I talked about like how the internet is constructed in China. A lot of times both these countries, they have their own way of doing things. Or we'll use the imperial system in the US. Everything is in inches or the whole, the rest of the world is using CM, <laughs> right? In both cases, I realized like going international is always a challenge because it's simply because yeah, they are so large monolithic systems that they are used to doing something that works very well in China, works very well in the US, but doesn't work that well in the rest of the world. I think it's a little bit harder with a Chinese company because in a lot of the US companies I work with, the people I work with, they came from all over the world. They have spent time, they bring their culture and their understanding of what works on the ground back in even to HQ. That's less true in a Chinese company. So from a product sensibility point of view, you really, really have to hammer home the idea of like, okay, it doesn't work like that in that part of the world. How different is it if, let's say, the same counterpart to what you're doing has worked in China? Is it different? I can give you one example, right? We hear of the 996 culture in Chinese mm. companies. That's that culture of 996 <laughs> extend out of China into Southeast Asia. Uh, just for the audience who don't know about this, 996 means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. But as one of my friends, uh, Shai Oster, who is the Asia Bureau Chief for the Information, uh, always say Amazon is like a Chinese company. It's just that they didn't know it yet. So, <laughs> and I, I talked to people from ByteDance, Alibaba, they, they, they model themselves heavily after Amazon. Yeah, I think one of the biggest difference you know, between me and say my counterpart in China is that 
when you're in based in Singapore, based in Southeast Asia, working with a Chinese tech company, you are constantly communicating in two languages. So internally, I will be speaking Chinese. I will do my PowerPoint decks in Chinese. I will present in Chinese. I will talk in Chinese to the folks in HQ, the folks in China. And then externally with some of my counterparts on the ground in Southeast Asia or with the customers, it will be in English. You, you're constantly doing this switch between two languages all the time. If, I, if I'm just in China, it's actually easier because I just talk in Chinese all the time. <laughs> so it really makes a difference when you come to the communication cadence. I think one of the other, one of the good things about working in a, in a Chinese company is the time zone really helps. I don't have to deal with Pacific time, which I think. So you talk about 996. It was quite funny because during my interview with Alibaba, they also mentioned you know, this 996 culture. Are you able to, will you be able to cope with it? Can you adjust to it? So they were like really try to get me mentally prepared for it. And I was telling them, I was like, look, when I was at Twilio, I had two shifts. The first shift was like 9 to 7. The second shift was like 11 p.m. to like 2, 3 a.m. It was like, you know, I mentioned I was working on like the wireless product. The entire Twilio wireless team was based in San Francisco. I was the only guy who's not based in San Francisco. So obviously they're not going to like, I, I need to adjust to whatever timing. And it was really pretty good. They would wake up at 8 a.m., which was like 11 p.m. We would do our you know, team meeting at 8 a.m., which is actually a huge struggle for people living in the Bay Area. But they were, they were willing to do that to accommodate my time. Over the next four or five hours, we worked through on the stuff. But I was working these two shifts. Working, yeah, I can tell you for a fact that working 996 is probably easier than working two shifts and then sleeping <laughs> four or five hours. Like I would sleep at 3, 4 a.m. And then at 9 a.m. I'm like busy like texting people on Slack and they're like, do you ever sleep? I'm like, yeah, I slept for four hours. <laughs> do that for like one, two years when you're young, but as you get older, it becomes harder. And, and so like the... The other thing I guess I would say that's different with my counterpart in China would be it is very helpful to be in China. To your earlier point when you're negotiating the deal with Alipay, it makes a world of difference when you're in HQ. FaceTime is still a very real thing. Like FaceTime as in being able to see people face to face is still a very real thing in China, even for a company the size of Alibaba, a lot of the decision-making happens in Hangzhou, which is why I used to spend a lot of time in Hangzhou before COVID. I think in 2019, I spent a total of more than 120 days in Hangzhou. Right? Because to get things done, it really makes a difference to be there. Right? It's, it's also true for even my colleagues in, in China. Like I have colleagues who are based in Beijing. And Beijing, like, tw like Alibaba had a huge office in Beijing. There was like a few skyscrapers. And even so, my Beijing colleagues will fly to Hangzhou every week. They always ask me like, oh, why do you come visit us in Beijing? I was like, I don't really need to go to Beijing because you go to Hangzhou all the time. So why don't we just meet in Hangzhou? <laughs> and that HQ effect is probably stronger with the Chinese companies. You have to be able, have to be willing to spend a lot of time if you're based in Southeast Asia, working in a Chinese company to be in HQ. So I, I think it's interesting now that we've seen the, you, both your experiences in a Chinese and a US tech company, and they are all high growth companies. What are their strengths and weaknesses when trying to expand geographically in the region? What would they need to do differently in winning the market? Because we are actually in privileged positions. I mean, when I was in Amazon, I, I've started to feel the presence of Chinese companies competing with me on AI products. I mean, ByteDance recommendation engine is probably second to none because people know how good the ByteDance product is, right? So we, we, we sit in basically the cauldron of both US and Chinese tech giants attacking the same market. I think it's the same for India, maybe with some bands here and there, but relatively Asia Pacific is now probably the most interesting market for both US and China tech companies. So where do you see those strengths and weaknesses and what would they have done differently in order to play it out? So I think some of these points I've touched on earlier, like one of the biggest strengths for a Chinese company is probably their speed of execution. You know, for people building products, you can go to your engineering team and they always come back to you in days and weeks. It makes a world of difference. Like the iteration cycle is so much faster. 
even though you may you know the product come back at a lower minimum bar, but you improve really quickly. After three, four, five years, you can be very, very, very competitive. And so I think that speed of execution on everything, not even just on product, in you know, in turning around, like say, let's say a deck for the customer, all the stuff, like it really, really helps. Uh, and I think that's more the core strength that Chinese companies have. The other thing is, I think there's also a lot more sensitivity to hyper-localization. So I'll give you a good example. So like when we were looking at India, for instance, like in India, there are a lot of different dialects. And we will be talking about, okay, yes, you know, that's Hindi, that's English, but we really have to go one level deeper and really cater to the different dialects in order to really be successful in India. And Chinese companies, I think, are a little bit more attuned to the nuances of the Asian culture. Because then maybe I think in US company it's like, okay, that's like Asia. And they kind of treat Asia as one monolithic block. Well, in China, because you are in the neighborhood, you are kind of like more attuned to the fact, okay, Asia is obvious, like India is obviously different from Japan, it's obviously different from like Indonesia, it's very different from Vietnam and Thailand. The Asian cultures have been influencing one another for thousands of years. They are a little bit more attuned and to all the differences, including all the language differences. And so they're like more willing to go hyper-local to cater to the differences in the culture. So that's another thing I think I've noticed with Chinese company. On the weakness side, I guess, I think one of the things that Chinese companies struggle with definitely is still English as a language. English is basically the primary language in doing business outside for most of the world. You're doing cross-border trade, even in Indonesia, in Thailand, you're signing contracts in English. And obviously that's challenging for China. Like I'm like correcting people's English like especially in PowerPoint decks, all the time. Communicating, and you know, I mentioned about communicating in one language internally in Chinese, and then communicating in another language externally. Like, for instance, let's say you're writing a PowerPoint deck. You probably can copy and paste stuff from your internal docs and transplant it onto your deck. If I was trying to do that in a Chinese company, I would have to copy and then translate, which is a lot of work. Translation is not trivial. That makes like that communication barrier makes it also really difficult to understand what customers' requirements are. So like let's say customers have a requirement, I will have to translate and explain it to the folks in China. That slows things down. It's a huge impact. The other thing I would say is the cultural affinity is very different between the rest of the world and China versus the rest of the world and US. So so what do you mean by that? So let's put it this way. Everybody in the world knows what is Avengers. Not everybody in the world knows what is Liu Mai Shenjian. <laughs> so think about it, like people in Asia, they will listen to Hollywood music, they will know Bruno Mars, they will watch Star Wars, they eat McDonald's, they drink Starbucks. How many of them would have like read Jing Yong, they would know who his nerds are, they have watched like Yulang Di Chiu. Like if I, yeah. yeah, on Netflix now. <laughs> <laughs> so like, if, if I say, even if I say the line like, okay, winter is coming, a lot of people in Valley knows exactly which show that come from. A lot of people in the rest of the world might know which show that come from. But I quote a line from a Chinese show that very few people will know. You know even for people in, in Singapore, they are not that attuned to the culture in China, even though we speak, a lot of us speak Chinese. Like for instance, in your case, like, have you heard of the song Ta Shan He? Yep, I do. Yeah. So like a lot of people would not have even know what that song is. I was watching this show called Mi Yue Zuai. I don't think a lot of people even know who Mi Yue is. The, then the question is, why does this matter? It matters a lot when you're trying to build rapport across borders between teams in different countries, between the HQ and the other regions. Or you're trying to build rapport with, with your customers. Let's say if you visit me in Twilio in, in the US, I can bring, go bring you to watch like Bruno Mars perform and you'll appreciate that. If you come visit me in Alibaba and I bring you to watch some Chinese singer, it's like, okay, this is like culturally interesting, but I don't really know who the fuck is this guy. <laughs> oh, but you can Sorry. bring them to that musical in Hangzhou at the West Lake, Sihu, uh, Yinxiang yeah. Sihu, because yeah. that, that is something that, that is like done a, by Zhang Yimou, but people but know who a, Zhang Yimou is, right? It's a tourist thing. Attraction, they yeah. The, but yeah. it's not culturally, that they, they don't even know right. who is. Not to the same level as I know McDonald's, I know NBA, I know like Hollywood, like I know Star Wars. It's very, very different. And, and, and so I think that people underestimate uh, what 
a difference that makes. So I like I mentioned Liu Mai Shenjian. Liu Mai Shenjian is actually the name of the Alibaba core values. But if you do not know what it actually refers to originally, like a lot of that meaning is lost in translation. It becomes much harder to build that cohesive corporate culture, uh, build that bonding between teams. It's, it's unfortunate because the Jin Yong novels, which I'm a fan of, and I've read every single book since 12 years old and, and follow the stories. In Alibaba, they actually use uh, nicknames. They don't use their true names. And this is a cultural aspect of that people don't capture. People know Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but there are, there's a wider universe of things on top of that, like martial art movies. And then you and I grew up, you know, we all want to be like the top martial artists in the world kind of thing. Yeah, you all want to and learn to Yang Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everybody wants to learn to Yang But I, I think I get what you're saying is that the cultural elements that actually make that difference. But one more thing I thought I should just point out, and then I spoke to somebody who is looking at the SaaS market in China, Lily with the Chinese characteristics. One thing I thought that the Chinese companies are very weak in now, and I think this will catch up with time, is that for a developer in this region to do open source, they tend to be also highly affiliated with the US tech products, open source products. Whereas the Chinese culture doesn't really have that open source API. Is that true? I mean, from your experience? I think to some extent that is true. Like the willingness to share between developers or between companies in China is a lot less than in the US. So for instance, like in the US, I had you know, my security guys at Twilio at that time, they told me they always go for this uh, like weekly meetup. And the rest of guys who are there, they'll talk about fraud and stuff. The rest of guys who are there will be guys from Uber, from Airbnb, from Google, from Facebook, and they will exchange best practices. They will exchange like, oh, you know, this is some novel attack that we have never <laughs> seen before. You, know, you might want to watch out for it. Like such things happen less in China. China yeah. com Chinese companies are very guarded. They're very secretive. They're very protective of their IP. Like the idea of open source something is, they might share, but probably not everything because they feel like, okay, you know, this is my competitive differentiation. So that their willingness to, to share is definitely lower. And so like the open source community is not as well developed. The other thing I feel like is, in, in the case of China versus US is that even whatever developer ecosystem, open source community that you build up in China is really just in China. Because most of the time they're talking of in Chinese on the internet. In the case of the US developer ecosystem, a lot of people who spend time in all the different open source communities, they are talking in English, which basically appeals to a developer whether you are in Ukraine, or you're in India, or you're in Indonesia, you could participate and be part of it. Now think about it. When you write code, you're writing in English. Yep. Even the developers in China are writing in English. Their keyboard in China is also the QWERTY keyboard. Mm. Right? These little things make a world of difference. Like people, it's very hard to appreciate it until you have to deal with it. <laughs> they are just <laughs> like, wow, okay, makes a world of difference. Politics is probably another one, like the US-China tension. China isn't exactly great friends with a lot of their neighbors, so that has a set of challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, Dealing a lot of that in 2021, especially with like India banning Chinese apps, many of which were my customers during the Trump administration. They were restricting a lot of the deployment of infrastructure, you know, which had a lot of direct impact. So, that is something that's very real for Chinese There's less of an issue, I guess, for US companies. I guess it will be a bit like a US company trying to operate in China is, is also equally challenging. So I've been on that side of the table as well. Okay, so maybe we should less av avoid the politics given that we are sitting in between both shoulders of two giants. I want to just go and try to finish up with the last topic. And you are a very well-known proliferate angel investor in the Southeast Asia space. People would want to find out like what are the verticals and the type of startups that you look for. Hmm. So I, I don't exactly have a very specific vertical where I say, oh, you know, I'm just looking into this space, that space. I'm pretty open to looking at all the different verticals, but all within the tech space, since that's the only thing I know. Probably not the person to talk to if you are starting a restaurant or a childcare business. I have friends who do that. I think they know that way better than I do. As an angel investor, I you know who write smaller checks. I typically look at pre-seed, seed stage investments. So I tend to not look at bigger companies. 
But I, I think within the, the domain of the tech world, we talk about product market fit all the time. So since you know, we are in Southeast Asia, we're looking at you know, mostly Southeast Asia markets. If you look at it, these are mostly developing, developing economies. And so for me, I think one of the key things that's really important is that the problem that the startup is solving should be relevant to developing Southeast Asia. So for instance, you know, a lot of the basic infrastructure that we require to enable internet transactions is still not very well developed in Southeast Asia. The digital financial infrastructure, the last mile logistics, you know, we've seen how logistics worked in the US and in China. Like we are very far from that. <laughs> like all the stuff in China, I can literally see where it is at any one point in time. It comes to me within two days, like the same in the US. Like I order stuff in Singapore, after two days, it still hasn't showed up. It's very, very different. And I think some of the other areas I think that's very interesting would be like mobile first products that can help a lot of the warungs, a lot of the MSMEs to digitize and enable digital commerce on the broader level, both online and offline in like developing Southeast Asia. And then I, I, I talked about like product market fit and catering and addressing issues that are persistent in developing Southeast Asia. So I'll give you a good example of like what I you know, have seen more recently that you know, isn't really a good fit. So, so for instance, there were a number of like artificial protein startups that emerged the last few years in Singapore. A number of these actually popped up in Singapore. But when they came to me and I saw them, they really struggled to see how they would succeed in Southeast Asia. And that was like maybe two, three years ago. And then not surprisingly, most of these companies, they have all subsequently re relocated to the States, where there's a much bigger demand as a base market for artificial protein than in Southeast Asia. And, and so I think that it's very important to really look at the product market fit relative to the geographical market you're you are addressing. Mm. Seems that we like NFTs more than we like protein foods then. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> the other thing that I'm particularly interested in is all the Web3 space, partly because I think we are seeing a concentration of talent in Singapore, one of the crypto mm. hubs. Singapore was very early to the bandwagon. But I remember very clearly talking to friends who were visiting Singapore in 2017. And then I'm like, these are friends living in the Bay Area. I was like, what are you doing in Singapore? I was like, oh, I'm here to attend this conference. Wow, okay, so you came all the way here for two days just to attend. Just like, there's a lot of people that I know now who are flying to Florida next week, the week after the attempt, permissionless. Because like, yeah, yeah that's a major event. And Dubai as well soon. Yep. Yeah, so there, are a lot of people, so there are a lot of people who are coming. There's a gathering of talent in the crypto space in Singapore. And then more recently, China banned all cryptocurrency transactions. They banned Bitcoin mining. And so there's also a lot of very talented crypto folks in China who have also moved to Singapore. Like magic happens when there are a lot of smart people coming together. That's definitely a space that I'm very interested in and I've been paying a lot of attention to. What are the traits that you will index from startup founders and their teams that would be a leading indicator for you to invest? So, yeah, I'm mostly interested in the founder and the team as them as individuals. So you know, there are a couple of things I always try to figure out when I talk to the team. Like firstly, is this the right person to tackle the problem? Is she obsessed with the problem? How much has she explored the entire idea space? So you look at people who are very obsessed about a particular problem that they want to spend you know, a number of years to go really solve that problem they tend to have spent a lot of time thinking about it. They're basically thinking about it day in and day out. And they would have thought so deeply and understand a lot about the nuances of the problem space. They can go layers upon layers into the whole issue. In engineering, there's this five why method mm. to try to uncover like, why did this happen? Why did this go wrong? And, and so same thing, if you keep peeling the iron, if you keep going deeper when you're talking to the founder, you can really get to some very interesting insights behind that, that problem space. Something that the founder, she, she understands about this space that others don't. That's you know, what I'm looking at. And a lot of times, it has nothing to do with expertise. So I'm trying to look for that, like that obsession with the problem, that original insight into that problem. The other thing that I really look for in the founders and team is whether they have the grit to overcome hardship and struggle. What are examples of her trying to overcome hardship in the past. If you look at startups, every startup that I've seen is just like an organized 
chaos. It's about moving from setbacks to setbacks. There'll always be something that goes wrong. And in order to power through that, you really need to have the drive, the motivation, the grit to, to go through all of it. And if you're not used to dealing with struggle or dealing with hardship, it's going to be really hard when you know, something goes wrong the moment you, you know, try to hit the road. The third thing that I'm, I'm looking for in a founder, especially in the founder, is am I inspired by the founder? Like, do I want to work for this founder? Do they have the charisma, the energy to sell me on the product and the vision? Because basically at the earliest stage of a company, you have nothing but an idea. So one of the things I always joke about is like, it's, it's a very fun, fine line between a con man and an entrepreneur. Both have to sell you a dream. The only difference is the entrepreneur turns the dreams into reality. When, when Microsoft first started Bill Gates, so IBM on MS-DOS, and he had nothing at that time, when he got the contract, he was like, okay, shit, I need to build this thing. So he hold himself up for a month and started coding it up and made it happen. When Stripe first started, there was nothing behind the API. It was just API docs, right? When somebody tried to open an account, they would go to a friend who's working at the payment gateway to manually create the account and process the, the payments. And then subsequently, they built the infrastructure, the stack behind that. So the founder really needs to have the ability to convince the other investors and potential employees to join her on the course and on this journey to the promised land. If you're not able to convince and inspire, like if I'm not convinced and inspired by the founder, then how am I to, supposed to believe that she can do convince and other employees and, and investors to do so? The fourth thing I think is for, I think founders need to be willing to think big. Again, I'll talk about like, if you are able to stretch the goal, people grow into that growth. Can they imagine this to be a multi-billion dollar business? You're able to set that target, you're able to dream big, you will become big. Does this person, is this person capable of like thinking big? And then the last thing I would say is really like progress. What progress have they made last week? Yeah, so there are a lot of founders, there are some founders who are very good at talking, but they can't execute. They cannot execute. So what have they done in the last one week? Have you done a mock-up? Great, show me. Do you have like a product? I'd love to see that. How many users have you onboarded? What do your users say? Like, like what are the actions stuff that you actually done? in the last one week. And I like to see that evolve to show that they, are able, they have demonstrated the ability to execute. It's not just talking. And, and so like those are probably some of the key things I look for in the founder and her team. Mm. So I just thought this would be the last question. How do you think that the angel investing scene where in where we are have changed in the last decade? I, I guess because we both see the mm. evolution of it in one way or another. Yeah. So... I think when, like at least 10 years back, when we first started, there wasn't really a lot of VC funds. I think the old, like even angel networks. In, like, the only angel network that I know of at that time was probably Bansi. And then, of course, you could go talk to your friends and family to raise money. So, and then during that time, it was basically raising money from people, what I call old money, people who have built and found success in other industries, whether it's real estate, banking, manufacturing, and you know, they have the money to invest, they are, they are interested to invest some of that money, they would also have connections that bring to the table. I think more recently, especially with the, as the startup ecosystem has grown quite a fair bit in the last five, six, seven years, you start to see a different group of people who are very interested in coming in to invest. These are what I call like the tech and startup money. So I think one of the biggest differences is that these, the tech and startup people who jump into the angel investing scene, they bring along also more specialized advice. The tech people understand the tech, the product people know a lot about building a product, the founders know about like fundraising and growing teams and managing all the you know, roller coaster ride across the founders. And so you start to see a lot more of these people who are within the tech startup ecosystem who are coming in to invest, which is different from the old money. And then, and, and so it's like, for instance, you know, from a, you'll see some of the founders such as like Royston and Tingru from Zopin, like they are very active on the angel investing scene. JJ, like I think JJ was on your podcast. And, and so Rainforest, uh, JJ was one of the first em uh, employee at Airbnb. He's also very active uh, on the angel investing scene. These are examples of people who, who have 
found some success in the tech community and they are paying it forward. And then you also see more organized angel networks. So beyond Binance, you have you know, Angel Central, you have you know, XA Network that we are both part of, we have McKinsey Angel. So there's a lot more of these organized groups coming together that you know, really help to support uh, startups at the very earliest um, stage. And I, I think the last thing I'll mention was probably, you, we're also seeing this trend where uh, some of the founders, this idea of like, they are founders by day and then angels by night. And so like, I think it's becoming more acceptable to sell part of your stake in startup secondary transactions uh, earlier on. And some of these founders have uh, plowed it back and invested into other startups. And this uh, is also one trend that I've seen more recently in the last two, three years. And I think startups appreciate having another founder on board, not just for the money, but also from the advice and something being able to relate with you, you know, in terms of the struggle that you have to deal with, especially on the emotional side. And so this founders by day, angels by night thing is, is, is also becoming more of a trend these days. And so I think those are some of the more like notable changes in the angel investing scene in the last decade, I'd say. The last thing I'll bring up is, you know, one thing that COVID has changed is the idea of like investing over a Zoom call becomes like more of a thing too. And so you, you see people who are more willing to put money, even if they are like, like living on the other side of the planet. So I know people who have invested in startups here, but they're living in the Bay Area, or they're living in, you know, some other part of the world. And that seems to become more of a trend as well. I don't know whether that will persist as we come out of COVID, but it's definitely something that has been happening in the last two years. I think we are going moving into a world where liquidity is going to be a much more important scarce resource than the free money we have been getting in the last decade. I think that's something that we are just at the right at the beginning. But Yao, many thanks for coming on the show to close two things. First, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Uh, two recommendations, I guess. So I'm a big fan of Trevor Noah. I don't know if you watched Trevor Noah and his you know, show. <laughs> so he just spoke on the White House Correspondent. The show was fantastic. But uh, he actually wrote a book before called Born a Crime. A really inspiring book, right? He grew up in South Africa. He talked about apartheid in South Africa, how he grew up through that, how he, made, he joined the comedy scene. I, I think that's uh, definitely a book I would recommend, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Uh, the other thing, so if you are really int very interested in Chinese companies, you know, I just put up a LinkedIn post two days ago about the insider story to TikTok. So there was this fantastic article that one of the journalists in Beijing wrote about TikTok. It was like, like 20,000 words. So it was a very, very long article. Uh, I would encourage people to go check it out. I can send you the link. Uh, but it clearly resonated with a lot of people. Clocked like quarter million views in two days. So there are a lot of people who are obviously clearly very interested in this. And I guess anybody who's listening to this might be interested as well. Since TikTok is like a spectacular story for a Chinese company. In fact, it's one of the very rare Chinese companies that didn't take investments from any of the big three. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of that's probably one of the reasons why it became now the big three. <laughs> okay. How can my audience find you? You can find me on Twitter at Yaoyo Y-A-W-Y-E-O. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, same, search for Y-A-W space Y-E-O, you'll definitely find me. I'm probably more active on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best place to follow me. Of course, you can find us on any podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and also tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, we look forward to your feedback and uh, your many thanks for coming on the show and we'll catch up soon. Yeah, thanks, Bernard. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I'll see you soon. Bye. Run it, run it, run it.